0: This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. Today is May 2nd. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the captivating Simon Belanger. My good sir, uh, we are here so, did the last one go on video? Are we video guys now. Uh,
1: I mean, it will eventually as I get better uh, at okay. video editing. So uh, I'm getting there. So anyone listening from Joint TCI, um, it is the plan. Is just I'm very new to video editing, so it'll take me almost a full day to figure out how the whole thing works. But uh, I. A couple podcasters crossing the chasm (laughs) to uh, becoming YouTubers. Wow. Pretty much. Yeah. I feel like a good thing people weren't watching me trying to edit because it did not look good at times. Uh, I will do it for you in no time. Don't you worry. Today, we're talking
0: earnings and news as we do once a week on the podcast here. You're going to talk about uh, another domino falling in U.S. banking. I'll discuss Visa, more drama from Canadian resources company Tech. We're going to talk about the AI war and then round it out with two Canadian names for earnings. Um, Good, sir. Let's do it. Our earnings season has been jam-packed. Lots of good insights. I was listening to some conference calls today. Any uh, conference calls on the bike trainer for you lately?
1: No, my bike and my back is messed up, so I can't be on the bike oh, trainer shoot. just yet, but it is in the cards soon. But uh, I actually, on a walk, I went and listened to the Allied Property REIT uh, conference call. Uh, quite interesting, uh, especially with what's going on with commercial real estate and estates.
0: I've been, the pod's been really tough. The last couple of weeks, especially these these news ones, because I'm in like product building mode, like day one of building a new startup, what it feels like, even though it's the same company and you get a little distracted from uh, the financial. And you know what? It is great for the mental health but also really hard for the podcast. So, uh I, I it, it's good that I have to come back to reality and and do some recording for the podcast. All right, another bank fall uh domino falling here. What's the, what's the deal?
1: Yeah, so I'm sure most people have heard about it. So First Republic became the latest US bank to fail. It's the second largest bank in history to fail. was actually lar- slightly larger than Silicon Valley Bank or SVB that uh we based basically started all of this i would say back in early march so i'll refer to them as frc which is just their ticker so frc went into fdic receivership which is the federal uh, deposit insurance in the u.s on the weekend and was auctioned off and bought by jp morgan um, according to the news and sources i've seen um i think a lot of them were on the condition of an uh, anonymity it was uh there was four banks in the running for the bidding Uh, now first republic was similar in many ways to svb but also different um here are some key points to keep in mind so you'll notice that there's definitely some things that are similar so first of all frc primarily serve high net individuals and their businesses This means that a large portion of their deposits were not insured by the FDIC, $250,000 insurance similar to SVB, close to 68% of the their deposits were actually uninsured. So that's a large chunk of their deposits. FRC also had duration mismatch, mismatch in their loans. So it means that their demand deposits, so just regular deposits, which can be withdrawn at any time, like Silicon Valley Bank learned the hard way aren't aligned with their loans which are much longer term so if there is a run on the bank then FRC has to sell loans that are underwater and take the loss to repay those deposits so it's not a great situation and that's where the similarities with uh, SVB were. The type of assets that they had were actually a bit different here so it issued a lot of ultra low interest rate mortgages to the wealthy individuals that I just talked about, and those were predominantly on single-family homes. So more than 80% of them had a duration of more than five years, and more than 60% had a duration of more than 15 years. This is not unusual for the US. Just like government bonds, the mortgages cannot be sold at par in a rising rate environment since their value goes down. And... Mortgage-backed securities have a lot of similarities to government bonds, but the issue as well with um, uh, First Republic here is that a lot of those mortgages actually could not be backed and packaged like mortgage-backed securities because a lot of them – the high net individuals, they were made in a way that they only had to pay interest on those loans. So they would not qualify for the uh, government kind of backed uh, mortgage securities in the US. Now, First Republic used some of the funding facilities that were made available by the Fed in March, which uh, was called the Bank Term Funding Program, which allows the banks to use treasuries or mortgage-backed securities as collateral to borrow at par and not the actual market value, which is significantly down. So they did use some of this, but clearly it was not enough to provide sufficient liquidity. And that program is just really... The only intent of that program is just to allow the bank to get things in order and essentially get more deposit in the bank. If they can't manage to do that, this program is completely useless. And it was just not big enough for uh, First Republic Bank. And. Back in March, for additional context here, 11 large U.S. banks, including JP Morgan, injected $30 billion worth of deposit into uh, First Republic after the failure of, of SVB, and that was meant to reassure depositors, but obviously it didn't work. So when FRC released its latest financial statement last week, it revealed that it had lost a whopping $100 billion in deposits in the quarter compared to the end of last year, which is a 41% decline. So once that news came out, uh, <laughs> it didn't take very long for the basically the writing to be on the wall to uh, most people knowing that the probability of the bank failing was quite high. Um, before I go on, Braden, anything you wanna to mention here? I just pasted First
0: Republic Bank's average total deposits since 2012, as it had this kind of amazing historic rise and growth all the way through to the end of 2022. and their stock price resembles a carbon copy, if you will, of SVBs. And the reality here is that these companies had tremendous monster uh, years uh, right up until this very point, which is such a interesting data point with banks. Because, you know, throw it into a long list of reasons why I, I, I honestly find I don't even if you're ten times smarter than me, which a lot of people who study banks are, it's just so hard to predict this kind of thing and value banks. Like they're so complex. And um no, I, I don't really have anything more to add here other than once
1: the writing was on the wall, it was, uh oh, here it is again. Like, you yeah. know, it's, uh, yeah, exactly. Me once that's it and banks are pretty complex to understand and what ended up happening like i mentioned at the beginning jp morgan ended up winning the bid to buy most of the assets and all 84 branches have now become jp morgan branches part of the deal is that they will pay 10.6 billion to buy the first republic assets not all of them but most of them and they will not assume any of the corporate debt or preferred shares and part of the deal is also that the fdic will share the burden of any losses in the loan portfolio which is definitely something that could happen because those mortgages uh, some could be underwater even though they're high networking individuals that typically um, you know pay back their loans. The, the risk of default is typically lower for these individuals. Uh, one of the key things and what people are kind of zeroing in on is the deal violates U.S. law that prevents banks from becoming too big. So the law says that banks that have more than 10% of U.S. deposits cannot acquire another bank, which is the case for JP Morgan. So they went against that. Um hmm. My perspective here is clearly the U.S. government and uh, the Biden administration did not want you know, to say that they bailed out a bank, Um, they were afraid probably what would happen if nothing would be done. So I'm sure there was a lot of pressure behind the scene to encourage big banks to bid on this because the reality is, is we're starting in the U.S. to be in the election cycle, the 2024 election. I mean, the U.S. essentially a a year and a half before the election, you're pretty much in an election cycle. So I think thing there was you know that's the rumbling i've been seeing is there was a lot of pressure behind the scenes but it also sounds like jp morgan got a Pretty good deal out of it. Um, and the last thing I'll say is I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more regional banks that face a similar situation. This was definitely one of the larger ones. So they'll probably be smaller if there's other ones. But keep in mind that the next financial crisis, whether it's in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it's most likely going to be something entirely different because this crisis is definitely different than 2008 where it was a credit quality issue. This is a duration mismatch. So the next, and that's the issue with regulation, is it addresses this crisis, but it doesn't really look forward on the other potential issues that could arise in the future.
0: Yeah, well said. Uh, Duration mismatch. it it seems so obvious and elementary when you look back at just kind of the huge mismanagement of their balance sheet and, you know, who thought rates was, who thought rates were going to have the move that they did? I guess clearly not even these execs, right?
1: Yeah. And the easiest way for people who want, like may not fully understand this, just think about it on your personal situation, right? So, If you want to build an emergency fund, you want that money to be readily available if you need it. You're not going to put your emergency fund in a five-year GIC that's locked in because, you know, you won't be able to access it or you might be able with some significant penalties. So that's the best way to kind of explain it from a personal perspective where you want things to be liquid that you may need at a moment's notice. And for anything else, yes, you can have a longer duration, but you have to realize that you won't have access to it right away. Yeah, good analogy.
0: Like the way I'm thinking about it too is like, say, with rates near zero, you bought a bunch of two year GICs, and then, you know, a year later you could get 5% on them, and that your current locked in rate is like nothing. Those JCs are not very valuable anymore, are they? And it's not a good comparison because. You know, it's JC versus a bond. But to give you kind of an analogy yeah. of the markdown that these companies have to actually – the hits they have to actually take when those bond values are just not worth what they were um, when rates move as they did. So, that's kind of what people talk about with the the rate mismatch. Um, very interesting. Dude, I'm just looking here like – FRC was a two hundred and twenty dollar stock in the fall of twenty twenty one.
1: Yeah, I think it had like a forty billion market cap, and then just when it closed last week, I think it was like five hundred (laughs) million. It's like it's crazy. Yeah,
0: yeah. I gosh, this is why I was so hesitant to try to take advantage of of some deals, uh, if you will, in the banking fallout because. I thought, they, I thought FRC was going to be hurt deposit-wise, but I didn't think it would be mm. like this.
1: Yeah, and the other issue too, and I think Charlie Munger kind of – I saw some headlines that he mentioned. You uh, talked a little bit about that on the weekend was that um, – There's a lot of regional banks, and I'm going to do a segment on that in the near future in terms of commercial real estate in the U.S., where you're seeing banks who have loans on uh, commercial properties, so office space. And these offices, I know San Francisco is definitely at the top of that list where you have all these big tech companies that are basically – barely using their office space the occupancy rate is extremely low so you can make a case that you know the value of these buildings have gone way down when these loans come to renew you know the the banks may be on the hook for for quite a bit of money because ultimately you know they they own the property at the end of the day if there's a lot you know there's a lot of mortgages issued against that let's uh move on to oh dude before we do that
0: should we talk about this FinChat thing that's gone completely viral i
1: don't know i i, I think i've heard of it but. <laughs> <laughs> dude there's like
0: there's some linkedin posts really that there's some linkedin posts that i'm finding in the wild there's one that i found yesterday that like i didn't know about like it, it hit my timeline oh, wow. organically or like my friend shared it to me it hit his timeline organically and it had over six thousand likes and six hundred and fifty reposts on LinkedIn. That day, we we had thirteen and a half thousand signups.
1: It's free, free publicity, <laughs> right there. That's the best kind of publicity. Yeah, who doesn't love
0: free marketing? Yeah. So it is. I feel like with Stratosphere, you know, a lot of the growth was attached to the podcast a lot of the growth was attached to just kind of like us willing its growth forward, you know, like yeah. direct outreach, like elbow greasing it. And this is just like viral loop. Uh, and we've done some engineering things to make sure it, it goes viral, but dude, it's been, uh, it's been an absolutely nutty 48 hours. i oh, sorry. Uh, week and a half-ish. Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) No, I've seen, and uh, I mean, the usage, I I use it, uh, you know, when I am work on the podcast a little bit too. I'm still double-checking to make sure the data is good, but so far, so good. So, um, I think the first version... The KPI data is just spitting out stratosphere data that we know is Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, Yeah. but I'm just like that, right? And I know I, uh, the early test version, I think I had, like, texted, yo, you may want to double-check this kind of thing, but uh, uh, the past several times I've used never had any issues with it so
0: yeah the i mean we fine-tuned it already to version 1.3 and and it's moving fast the first version like wasn't that impressive but i think it's pretty good now uh visa you ever heard of visa yeah i heard of it. um you've heard of him okay cool the had their quarterly release i guess was it uh a few days ago now the the Q2 2023, this is their, their Q2 fiscal and net revenues were up in, I'll do in uh USD constant currency. Uh, net revenues were up 11% net income on gap is up 17%. Earnings per share up 20% because of the buybacks. And, uh, it's, you know, wonderful double digits across the board payments volume up 10% cross border volume still up massive up 24% so we're now like you know we're we're back with a vengeance more than uh, 2019 numbers transactions processed was up 12% every KPI you can really think of in the 10 to 20% growth for this business and I mean, here we are in 2023, and the thesis just still remains so strong, so inflation resistant, given the fact that it's, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts type business, 60% operating margins. Like, are you not entertained? I keep uh, this business and MasterCard at a 10% combined position, and uh, it's time I I bump them up because they're a percent or two too low right now. So, um, I I was discussing on the joint TCI that I'm I'm adding a, a percent to them each once this Norbert Gambit goes through. Uh put a little graph here, Simon. Total transaction volume is on a trailing 12 months of 14 and a quarter trillion, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around uh that number. Earnings per share has compounded at 26% since September 2012 like not much more to say other than the most brilliant unit economics you can think of with a business that is highly highly entrenched and uh the show goes on
1: Yeah, exactly. We'll have to get used to kind of go sharing our screen. So uh, people who are looking at the video, but uh, that's okay (laughs) for the next one. We're still, you know, that's why. uh, Still podcasters. Yeah, exactly. Not YouTubers. Yeah, I think uh, within, I think the next probably month or so, we'll, we'll, you know, I'll get better with the uh, video editing and we'll get better at just sharing our graphics so people actually know what we're talking about. It's a pretty nice looking graph. I uh yeah, it is. I must yeah. say. Yeah, that's it. Um now to move on, I think you alluded to this. So there's more tech drama, not tech technology, but uh the mining company TCK. Um uh, essentially, you know, I think they're they, they're just taking over Rogers in terms of drama. Um it really seems like <laughs> you had the family drama. we had, uh, yeah. we, had C- we had the CPCN
0: rail drama with Casey Southern. Then the Rogers family decided to spice it
1: up, but now tech and Glencore uh, move over. Yeah, exactly. Um, Now, management decided to withdraw the uh, separation agreement for shareholders to vote really at the last minute. I think there was like a 10-15 minute delay, I think, from when I got a notification on my phone that it would go for a vote and then that it got pulled from a vote which i don't know was kind of a bit of a head scratcher, but the highly publicized proposal was to separate its steel making coal business from the rest of its mining operation which according to management would unlock value to shareholders what was noteworthy like i said is the last minute withdrawal here but most likely management um, just didn't think that it would get the majority of shareholders to approve the move so they pulled it before um before the vote i mean if the writing is on the wall there's really no. Point, and as I was researching this, it really seems like there's three, well, a few different options here for tech. First, they could go ahead with their separation plan with some slight modification in order to win shareholder approval. Second, they could look to sell they're still making coal business to another mining company or third Glencore or another buyer comes knocking for the whole business at a higher price and that one is really tricky because you had the federal government so trudeau and some of his lieutenant that were saying that that would go through a stringent review if they were to be bought or have an offer from a foreign company. And so did uh, Pia Poilievu said, I believe they would just go ahead and block it if the conservatives were in power. So I'm just talking about here the, the politics just because it has something, some implication. And that's something I mentioned when we last talked about. It. I think it was last week. Um, so I'm sure there's going to be more to come in the coming weeks or month and, uh, We'll keep people posted, but this one seems to uh, getting a higher and higher profile, it seems, uh, every single week. I believe I left
0: the summary of when we talked about tech for last Thursday's podcast episode. And I was talking about tech and the Glencore proposal. And I think I left the segment with... Tech seems to think this is over, but I don't think Glencore has... I don't think Glencore agrees with that sentiment. Uh, I don't think they think it's over. So, uh, this is going to be coming, you know, more and more of this for a while.
1: Yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't know. It feels like, um, with both parties coming out that have obviously a chance of winning the next elections, saying that they are not really, don't seem in favor. Um, and you're seeing more and more emphasis with different countries to put, you know, protect their natural resources. I think that's the biggest wild card in here because Glencore could come, but if the, uh, you know, federal government decides to nix the deal, you know, they're going to nix the deal. Yeah. Good point. Tech. uh, So I I
0: guess what's going to happen now with their, you know, what you're talking about here with their proposal to separate the business with the steel making coal and the the mining operations, like what's the latest there? Because it seemed like everyone was on board for that. At least they communicated that, that, you know, their largest
1: backers, the
0: insiders were all on board.
1: I don't know. Yeah, I really I haven't uh, seen anything, but uh you know, I'll keep people posted on the podcast in terms of what's coming up maybe. Uh maybe some shareholders are trying to, you know, convince management to get a better offer from Glencore, maybe create a bidding war as that could be a potential a better avenue or maybe like I said in one of the outcomes maybe they think's just selling the steel making coal business and keeping the rest uh, as Glencore would just unlock even more value. So, I really don't know. It was definitely a surprise, but something must have changed that we don't know. Yeah. Well, cle- yes, clearly. Let's talk about the Google and
0: Microsoft quarterly reports, as well as the AI and search war that is now among us um, I want to do something a little bit different here because, you know, I, I, like I do, you come out here and just spew the the business results for their quarter, and obviously those are important. So I'll I'll, I'll I'll summarize some key takeaways of their quarter before I get into the hot topic of artificial intelligence and the the search war. So Google, as an advertising business, definitely saw some softness in their results. Weakness in cost per clicks on search, YouTube had a bit of a down quarter and so forth. I mean, when you look at CPMs, cost per clicks, look, this is an advertising business and advertising is cyclical and has uh, effects from the economy, the strength of the advertising market uh, for sure. And so the one really positive note here is the cloud business continues to grow uh, at, you know industry-leading rates and had its first profitable quarter of operating income um, while they uh, continued to gain some market share. I personally like the product. Um, we use Google Cloud infrastructure for my companies. They're super easy to use, which is contrary to I would say the uh, Google Search Console and the Google Analytics and... Uh, or
1: Gmail. Oh G- my god, Gmail. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God, the search on there is atrocious. Atrocious. For a
0: company that does the search business, the Gmail search is atrocious. Uh, Even if you're on the paid enterprise version of it, still, like, you like search something that you know exists in there. And you don't get the result.
1: I know. And it, the threads as well, they're so confusing. So like, I don't understand how they haven't been able to fix that. But I digress. Sorry. No, for... <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, like, their,
0: their B2B enterprise tools have some of the worst UI UX I can possibly think of. <laughs> Which is like, how? Don't you have like... Didn't you employ, like hire thirteen thousand employees in the last quarter? Um, and so, yeah, that, that's I, I do like the cloud offerings they have. Of course, it's become a little commoditized between the, the Azure's, the AWS, the, the Google Cloud console. But uh, I do, I do like it. Now, one thing that was not mentioned on the call, and why none of the analysts were deciding to grill them, I, I don't know, is one of the great mysteries of that conference call, was the cost-cutting strategies they've come out with are like no more snacks in the lunchroom. Like, it, it feels like this business is being run like a summer camp while Apple and Microsoft are being run like businesses with disciplined capital allocation. And it, it's fine to be run like a summer camp, Simone. If you continue to own the most lucrative monopoly on planet earth, which they have for 20 some odd years, but the world is changing. Uh, all of big tech, unfortunately, I'm not celebrating layoffs, but it is the reality of it. There's been immense layoffs in, in technology as companies kind of scale back their, their spend. They realize, okay, we're not going to probably grow 30% year over year for eternity, so we gotta, you know, have some disciplined capital allocation and and longevity here, which is business in itself. It feels like Google's still being run like a summer camp, and the business I didn't foresee having rapid changing dynamics uh, with search and the way people extract information. Just a year ago, uh, we did a stocks on our watch list segment. I think it was. June-ish, I, I did a segment about how I think Google is outrageously cheap here at 17 and a half times earnings. I'm increasing my position. The gatekeeper of the internet trading at sub 20 has optionality in cloud, YouTube, other bets, uh, AI, look no further. And I I still agree with that sentiment. I, I, still, I still hold that sentiment here. But the fact Future is looking more different than the same in how people extract information online. And when the future looks different than the current status quo, that's like the arch nemesis of a natural monopoly. And so I've had to kind of change my thinking and, and do some more extraction and understand AI and understand what are the unit economics of a search when it's all kind of creating this text, the answers in front of you instead of driving clicks. Like, how does that affect the, the business model? Um, anything more to add there until I get into Microsoft and the wars here?
1: Yeah, I mean, not too much. Um, but your comment, you know, for the efficiency part, you know, we're just cutting the snacks and stuff like that. Like, I do, I do think at this point maybe gets a year or, you know, grace period, but... I think you're going to start seeing some shareholders asking for a change in CEO. It's too bad to say. I think he's done some, Sundar. I think Sundar yeah. has done some really good things, but from what I've been reading and hearing is that there seems to be this culture at Google of, you know, being afraid to break things where you have their competitors yeah. that are like, you know, just full going a hundred miles ahead, pulling uh, maybe a, you know, a page out of Elon Musk's playbook where, you know, you try something, doesn't work, you break it, that's fine, just move on, you know, revert it back to what it was. Yeah. But at least you've learned something like startups. Yeah, dude. like startups yeah. do. I mean, I'm not saying to do like Twitter is doing, cause I feel like that's probably a bit too extreme. Cause <laughs> the extreme, I think they, they're actually, uh, we don't see their financials, but I feel like they are hurting their business and there's starting to be more and more alternatives that could be. Elon said he's running the world's largest nonprofit. Yeah, yeah, exactly, but I mean, <laughs> <named> yeah, Twitter. <laughs> um, that's probably the other extreme. But I think there's probably a, a place in between where Google is at now and a uh, Twitter and Elon Musk, where you know I can't imagine that they can't do some more cost savings and have more ambition and just forward thinking in terms of new products and not and not have everything perfectly done. That's okay.
0: Now, of course, there is a lot of moving parts in these gigantic trillion dollar oh, yeah. businesses. Yeah. Of of course, there's so many people. There's so many execs that are involved in some of the decision making. But having said that, it feels to me like the strongest CEOs are moving forward in this new environment in a completely different step function than the weaker big tech CEOs, you know. Look at the momentum Microsoft has. Satya Nadella is probably the best non-founder CEO the the industry has seen in a long time. Um, Tim Tim Apple, Tim <laughs> Mr. Apple. Tim Cook. Yeah, like he you'll, that... you'll
1: get sued by uh, Donald Trump for using the. Yeah, term. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a trademark That's on big... Tim Apple. <laughs>
0: Uh, he's got that dog in him. Uh, that business has always been run more lean than, than the other, uh, tech companies. And of course, you know, don't cuck the Zuck. Uh, he, he seems to be finding his step in his, uh, quote unquote year of efficiency. And then you have Andy Jassy and Sundar coming out with just meager results. Uh, and, In a time where things are, you know, quote unquote, wartime CEOs, you know, like if it's a stupid saying, of course, like, you know, but it's true. You're seeing a bit of a divergence, I think, in the quality of the the person at the top. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised like what you said uh, with Sundar. I mean, he did a good job with a lot of the business, but is, is is he the guy for right now? I don't know.
1: No, exactly. That's the question. But um, yeah. Anyways, I think yeah, I made some good points. I'll, I'll list. I'll let you finish your segment here. So, when it comes to Microsoft,
0: I love this quote uh, from from Satya Nadella because, oh God, I don't. I wouldn't want to compete with this guy. He goes at the end of the day, Google is the eight hundred pound gorilla, and he's being asked about search with the new Bing. And how it's going to fare. So he goes, at the end of the day, Google is the 800-pound gorilla in this. I hope with our innovation, they will definitely want to come out and show that they can dance. And I want people to know that we made them dance. That was quote CEO of Microsoft Satya Nadella. I just listened to the earnings call Q&A for, for Alphabet for Google. And there was lots of discussion on AI, the optionality they have. That's all fine. I think that there's tons of opportunity here. It just feels to me like Microsoft's playing to win and they're the more fierce competitor and they've made the brilliant moves over the last couple years with GitHub. Now they're huge instrumental investment in open AI and then follow on 10 billion round, making them use Azure. It's basically like, you, oh, you need 10 billion? Well, guess what? You're, we'll give you it, but we're going to own a significant amount and you're going to use Azure for all your computing power, they've engineered some noticeable brilliance over the past 12 months, three years, looking more broadly. Um, and I'm feeling pretty good about my decision for moving some capital off the table from Google into Microsoft in January, which is somehow up 37% on my cost basis. Like I did not have that on my 2023 bingo card for a $2 trillion company. Um, but uh, I mean, I can't take a lot of credit. Big tech has had a huge rebound across uh, most of their stock prices so far. I'll leave it at that, but uh, the Azure growth rates continue to be impressive as well. You wonder how much of it is being subsidized by their uh, <laughs> the open AI investment. Yeah,
1: no, exactly. I mean, uh, I feel like there's probably a bit of a run up, people getting excited for Microsoft, and but also, I mean, there's a lot of yeah. good things. And keep in mind, I know we... I, I guess we didn't add that to our notes today, but uh, Microsoft has some a new found fresh capital at their disposal with the Activision Blizzard um, acquisition most likely not going through after UK regulators. Did we just learn uh, that? That was last week. Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess. Remember how I told you that I've been literally in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was last in in week. No, I can't believe it. I just, I kind of clued in as you were doing this segment. Uh, but yeah, I didn't, yeah. I mean, I don't have it. I'm just going on memory just here, but, um, yeah, the UK regulators basically are, are looking to block it. Um, I think it's not officially dead. Uh, Microsoft will probably, uh, have to go through the motion just to make sure they minimize, I think, a breakup fee. Um, I think there's still going to be one, but um, not that large and they're going to have that capital available for them if they uh, – well, clearly, if the deal doesn't go through, which seems to be the uh, the direction it's going right now.
0: Can I throw your brain for a, backfl- a backflip here? Oh, yeah. With the big tech reversal. Uh, I'll leave it at this uh, for big tech here after this. It's an idea taken here from searching capital on Twitter. Amazon the largest, sorry, Amazon, the fastest growing online ads business. Microsoft, the fastest growing search engine. Meta, the most disciplined big tech capital allocator now. Google, the fastest growing cloud business. Yeah, I mean. It- we have had a completely, everyone like, you know, they're playing musical chairs and they all just said, get up. All right, everyone switch
1: it up. We're all sitting and in And wasn't uh, Google's cloud business profitable too? I didn't have a chance to go through their initial. Yep, yeah, yeah, okay. I mentioned okay. That. Sorry, I must have missed that. Yep. But uh yep. yeah. Profitable. Big P. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's pretty for cloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for cloud Big businesses, P. that's uh, that's quite an accomplishment. Um now we'll go to small tech with uh Pinterest. I mean, Smell Pinterest tech. is pretty small and <laughs> compared to those behemoths. So, yeah, I've just never yeah, heard so that. And I Pinterest love it. earnings Q1 2023. Um, clearly, the market did not like these results. I mean, it was significantly down. I think it was down close to like 15, 16 percent on the heels of the earnings release. Revenues increased 5% to $603 million. It's an increase of 3% for U.S. and Canada, 6% for Europe, and 38% for the rest of the world. Global monthly active users, or MAUs, uh, often referred to, increased 7% to $463 million. That's an increase of 1% for the U- U.S. and Canada, which is by far the most profitable per user market. And it was flat on a sequential basis here. Increase of seven percent of monthly active users for Europe, but only up three percent on a sequential basis. An increase of nine percent for the rest of the world, but only up four percent on a sequential basis. So you're starting to see the theme here that I'm I'm talking about. The average revenue per user was down one percent, and then that you can really see that because the global monthly active users increased seven percent, yet. Revenues only increased 5%, so clearly the average revenue per user will be down that kind of situation. They had a net loss of $209 million for Q1 versus a net loss of $5 million last year dur- during the same quarter, so a much bigger loss. They repurchased $72 million worth of stock during the quarter, which is, I guess, probably the silver lining, although a company in Pinterest situation, I would almost prefer that management not do that, but... Um, Yeah, that's just my take. Uh, Free Castle was down 11% for the first quarter. And one piece of good news, though, is a partnership with Amazon for third-party ads that they're starting. And like I said, the stock got uh, pretty crushed after the earnings release. I think, you know, one of the reason is, like I said, the average revenue per user was down and the guidance wasn't great. They said that revenue growth would be in line with the current quarter, which is implying mid-single digits. However, they guided for expenses to grow in the low teens, which means that profit Ability will be impacted further so i used to own pinterest i'm glad i sold it because i was starting to see these signs and i didn't know if things were going to turn around and my bet was that it would but after a year and change of waiting for things to turn around um, i just decided it was best to sell My position here and I don't know there is a lot of red flags here that things may be taking a turn for the worse maybe this partnership with Amazon will kind of turn things around but um, not great in terms of uh, if you're a shareholder for Pinterest
0: Pinterest for me has never passed the if the stock market closes down for 10 years and you can't do anything and you can't ever sell the stock. You know, the old Warren Buffett 10-year test. Yeah. It, it's so like, just the alarm bells go off. It doesn't even come close to passing, you know, the first tier of that test. Because I just don't know how long this business really has product market fit. I, I, I'm i not sure. And... um Clearly, you aren't either, and why I tax at the the business?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, unfortunately. I thought I think the platform still has a lot of potential. It's just you know it's based on images totally. and videos, so it, it does. And a lot of the time, I know from personal experience, I would go on there. I used it a lot for projects outside, but also recipes, and I'm. For some things like projects, if you need a specific tool or kind of, you know, item related to that project, you know, I, I'd i be wide open to, uh, hey, can I get a link to Amazon to buy it right away, the exact thing that I need. Yeah. Uh, but for whatever reason, I mean. Such high search Exactly. Intent. But, uh, I, I mean, I think they've done an okay job. It actually, their ARPU has actually increased quite well over the last two, three years. But the fact that their user growth is kind of stagnating a bit they're really just seeing good uptake in the other than europe and canada u.s which is not great because those markets are not being monetized all that well um yeah there's a lot left to to be desired here unfortunately
0: <laughs> i love
1: i like a but that um all right. Let's, ra- yeah. let's round it out here. Last, uh, one. You have, uh, one yeah, more. Yeah. So right? I own this company. So allied property REIT uh, earnings. And like I mentioned earlier in the episode, I'm looking to do a segment on commercial real estate. Uh, I'll try to maybe compare it to US and Canada because there's some pretty significant differences with what's happening here versus the US. Um, a lot of red flags in the US, but. This is Canada Allied has all its properties located in uh, Canada, mostly Toronto, Montreal, but also Calgary, Vancouver, and a couple other urban areas in Canada. But I think uh, just by memory, Toronto and Montreal is like 80-something percent of their total leasable square footage. Now, operating income was up 14.5 percent. That was mainly because of last year's acquisitions and development completion. Uh, funds from operation was up 5 percent, but FFO per unit was down 3.6 uh, percent. Funds from operation, for those who are not familiar, I do like to, you know, just explain quickly every time I talk about this, if we have new listeners, it's 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 essentially your profits or net income, but you remove the impacts of amortization and depreciation and any gains or losses that you would get from selling buildings. Um, So that's it's a really widely used metric for uh, real estate investment trusts. And if that's something you're interested in, you really need to get familiar with this metric. The other one is AFFO, so adjusted fund from operations. Very similar to FFO, but also includes recurring expenses for maintenance and essentially uh, normalizes rents over the period of time. Now, AFFO, was. I look at AFO, AFO as like the – I look
0: at it as <laughs> adjusted funds from operation. I look at it as like the Nirvana yeah. metric. For yeah, there, it's
1: a very – It's the holy grail yeah, exactly. in a way. exactly. And – when you look at a REIT, make sure that you look at their definition because the definition I gave you is the most widely wa- used one, but depending, these are not official metrics. So depending on the company, they may calculate it ever so differently. So they'll usually have a section, their financial statements where it explain how they calculate it. Just make sure you're aware of that. So AFFO was up 4.1%, um, but per unit was down 4.5%. Now they are seeing strong rent growth with rent per occupied square foot, excluding uh, their UDC portfolio, which is their urban der- data centers, which is up for sale currently. So that was up 3.7%. So that's quite strong considering what we're seeing down south. For example, leased area was down 50 basis point to 88.8%, while occupied area was only at down 10 basis point to 88.2%. So. It's actually, you know, the metrics are still staying very strong for a market that a lot of people are very unsure about, to say the least. And there was an analyst that asked during the conference call what the occupancy would be for the rest of the year. And management said it will be in the low 90s uh, for sure by the end of the year. And I quote, that's what they said. So, um Management seems to be uh, still uh, relatively bullish on their business. Um, there is clearly saying that it's taking more time to close deals, which is usually in relation when you, you see economic downturns and companies knowing that there might be some turmoil in the forecast. So they're doing their due diligence, which is, typical, nothing unusual. And they also said that they haven't seen any impact for um, the layoffs in the tech space uh, in the U.S. that we've been seeing. They haven't seen any of that impact translate on their business. So that's encouraging as well. Tenant retention is around 65 to 70 percent. And the forecast Uh, actually it was 60% and the forecast for this year is around 65 to 70% and typically they are around 75% so a bit lower than usual but still still something that's positive in my opinion considering the uh, situation for office space right now and the interest cost was up because of variable debt which they intend on getting rid of once the sale of their UDC portfolio has been completed. They also provided an update for about that they are working with scotia bank and cbre on the process and they've received interest from 30 percent of the firms that were contacted they said it was roughly 100 firms that were contacted so i would say around 30 uh, expressed interest they received first round bids on march 24th and narrowed the field for the second round of bidding they expect to receive firm offers after the third round of bidding so it's moving along quite well and really it's paying off debt and getting those debt levels a bit better so that they can look at expanding a few years down the line and uh, the last thing i'll mention here is there was an interesting question from analysts who said um asked them about their thoughts on what's happening with commercial real estate in the u.s and the management Mm -hmm. didn't want to They answer the question. It was it was pretty insightful, but basically they are looking at what's happening in the U.S. They don't have any plans in the short to medium term to expand there, but uh, they are keeping an eye on it. And, you know, they're not ruling it out either at some point. When the time is right to uh, potentially expand their business in the US, they think that there's still some expansion opportunities left in Canada, but uh, it sounds like they're keeping an eye on it. They may be opportunistic. Um, they, they didn't want to be committal or anything like that. I could tell that they were kind of, they were answering the question, but they didn't want to, you know, imply anything that would not be true. But I thought that was a really, really interesting question from, from an analyst there.
0: Commercial real estate is in
1: a weird place right now. Oh, yeah, to say the least. (laughs) That's the understatement (laughs) of the podcast. That might be the
0: understatement of the entire podcast. Yeah. So I I guess the the big question here is this uh, urban data center portfolio.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's going well. I think it's actually smart for them to do that because they want to focus on what they do well. And uh, urban data center have been doing or I mean data centers as a whole uh, have been performing pretty well, at least uh, in the last year or so. So I think there's I'm not surprised that they had a lot of interest in that. So I can see them getting a pretty good value out of it. And then removing that variable debt off of the balance sheet, I think, is a smart move. And then their balance sheet will be in good space. And they can they should be able to weather any kind of downturn in the rental office real estate if there is one in the next few years.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today, folks. We appreciate you. Uh, this is the Canadian Investor Podcast. We're here twice a week, no matter what. And you can listen anywhere on your podcast players. If you want to support the Patreon page, that is at com. We just did our post uh, yesterday. We're going to have video on there soon for the listeners to watch and uh, our monthly portfolio updates that go in there as well. If you are um, living under a rock and haven't gone to TCI. Sorry, wow! I got too many URLs. Okay. If you're living under a rock and have not gone to FinChat.io, F-I-N Chat.io, it is uh, like ChatGPT but loaded with financial data and trained on uh, being a financial analyst. We trained it on 3,500 pages of Warren Buffett, um, tens and tens of thousands of financial metrics. Tens and tens of thousands of earnings calls, transcripts, and investment books as well. So, uh,
1: and it can also help you with your
0: golf swing. That's right. And it can, <laughs> just, if you pay it enough money, it'll also help you with your golf swing. Dude, imagine like uh, <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna affect the physical world one day, and uh, maybe that'll be true. We're about to record another show uh, for the Monday release, and I'm actually going to talk about investing and how it relates to your golf swing. So uh, oh, yeah, stay that's tuned right. there, Mr. Bailon Yeah, Mr. <laughs> Mr. you stay tuned yeah. there. I wasn't even I thinking about you. that, actually. <laughs> so. Yeah, you're ahead of the game. I right, we'll see you in a few days. Take care, bye-bye.
1: The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.